from Capital Public Radio in Sacramento. This is Insight. I'm Beth Ruyak. Wildfires and power outages continue to dominate daily life for still tens of thousands of people in California. Though there is some good news to report, Cal Fire says the Kincaid Fire in Sonoma County and in Napa County did not grow in acreage overnight. It is now at 45 percent containment. The Getty Fire in L.A. is 39 percent contained. The Easy Fire, that's the one we talked about being new yesterday, that's in Simi Valley. It was just a few hundred acres. It's now a little over 1,700 acres. It has 10 percent containment. That extreme flag, red flag warning remains in effect through this evening in the southern part of the state. You might have seen reports that there are two new wildfires being fought, one in Riverside, one in San Bernardino. Meanwhile, PG&E continues the work of restoring power. About 150,000 people are still without power, but with a mild seven-day forecast, there are no new public safety power shutoffs planned for now. And again, we'll refer you to capradio.org. There is a power shutoff map. You can plug your address in and check the status if you need to for your street or your area. So this is the arena of conversation we're going to start with this week's Capital Chat. Capitol Bureau Chief Ben Adler is joining me now. Hi, Ben. Glad to have you here. Good morning, Beth. Happy Halloween. And too. to you, yeah. So PG&E and PUC are, are acronyms that are being used a lot in a lot of conversation. I want to back up to the PUC, which is the Regulatory Commission yeah. for You want your first bowl of alphabet soup this morning. Yeah, I know. And it's complex stuff to jump right into. But will you, you give sort of a primer on PUC, on the CPUC. Sure. We took a deeper dive uh, over the summer, right after the California legislature and Governor Newsom passed a, a really important law, complicated but important, uh, intended to deal with uh, fire prevention and utility liability. Uh, And that measure was AB 1054. And it got us, uh, part of what it and uh, accompanying legislation does is it sets up this new wildfire safety division in uh, state government. And it got set up in the California Public Utilities Commission. Now, that's temporary. It's going to shift to another state agency. But this agency, the commission, was felt to be the most ready to get it up and running swiftly. It's working to do that now. This had us look at, well, wait a second. This commission, this California Public Utilities Commission, is the state agency that regulates the utilities. And we're not just talking electric utilities. We're talking water utilities. We're talking um, gas utilities. Uh, It also uh, um, is responsible for telecommunications giants like AT&T and Comcast, uh, ride-hailing companies like Uber and Lyft, which will bring us full circle as we go through uh, another topic in in our segment today, railroad companies like Union Pacific and BNSF, passenger, commuter, and light rail systems from Amtrak and BART and the L.A. Metro to the San Diego trolley and, yes, Sacramento Regional Transit, limos, airport shuttles, bus companies like Greyhound and Megabus and ferry service. All of this under the PUC. Yes, exactly. And it used to regulate even more. It used to regulate residential moving companies, flight schools, whale watching boats, once upon a time, even hot air balloons. No wonder in an article you wrote in August, you called it a sprawling, powerful, yet obscure beast. It is obscure. And I think that's the part that we're going to focus on today, because who's on the commission? And let's talk about how they get there and how long they stay. 
There, there are five commissioners who govern this beast, and uh, they are appointed by governors of California. They serve they serve fixed six year terms, and the reason for that is uh, it, it dates back to the genesis of the of the uh, railroad commission that became the Public Utilities Commission back when railroads were uh, bribing and 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 had a lot of influence in, in state politics mm. and there was a, a way this this commission was designed to take the oversight one or two steps removed from the state capitol so the governor appoints commissioners they are confirmed by the senate and then they serve fixed six-year terms which means the governor can't fire them ah. so you think of it a little bit in some ways like the federal reserve the president appoints a fed member uh and the Senate, uh, I don't actually, I don't know for a fact if the Senate confirms. I believe the Senate probably does confirm. Uh, and then they, they serve fixed terms. And, you know, we, 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 you may recall President Trump expressing some frustration with one of his Fed, Fed picks, the, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, in recent months over uh, interest rates. But he can't fire Jerome Powell. Gavin Newsom can't fire a, a commissioner. OK, this leads us into... An interesting piece of a conversation that happened. Yes. Our colleague, Randall White, interviewed Governor Gavin Newsom over the weekend. And there was a little bit of discussion about this because there's been a bigger debate about whether PG&E is too cozy, too close to the PUC. So have I set up enough um, some of the exchange that happened that we can listen to closer? Yeah. So, of course, the Public Utilities Commission, even with its you know, degree of removal and independence from the rest of state government, has absolutely been accused of being too cozy with the utilities that it regulates. That, you know, that can range sometimes from coziness with telecoms to, yes, coziness with uh, utilities like PG&E. Uh, there were a lot of criticisms of the commission uh, in the aftermath of the San Bruno gas pipeline explosion mm. uh, several years ago. And again, a lot of criticism in how, it's, uh, how it either has or hasn't handled utility wildfire safety, which was one reason that people were questioning whether the commission should oversee this new wildfire safety division. So uh, when Randall White interviewed Governor Newsom on a scratchy phone line on Sunday afternoon <laughs> right. as the governor was was touring some of the fire damage, mm -hmm. uh, Randall said, well, does this mean that the days of, of the PUC being cozy with utilities are over? And uh, the governor mentioned that he had just appointed, he's appointed this year a couple of members, a, a, a SMUD board member, Genevieve Sharoma, and then also within the last uh, couple of months, a new chair, Maribel Batcher. I've had the privilege of just appointing uh, one member, uh, and I look forward to making additional appointments. Uh, but I have the confidence uh, in the current commission right now that they get it. Uh, and to the extent that that was a bad past practice, um, I assure you, if the new president of, of the PUC is in any way, shape or form indulgent in that respect, uh, her tenure will be short. But I put her there because I have great great confidence in her, her integrity, her character, and her past performance in other capacities where she's delivered. And of course, we have to point out that uh, her tenor will not be short unless she resigns. The governor could ask her to resign, but he does not have the power to fire her. It almost sounded like he didn't realize that. I think I, at that moment he probably didn't, uh, whether he knows or not. I mean, it, it's a legitimate question. The fact is he certainly has a lot on his mind right now. Uh, of course, he can put pressure on her to resign, but he can't make her resign. 
One other aspect of this is the emergency hearing that happened and the PUC calling PG&E in to continue this ongoing investigation. Where does that go? What might come out of this? So uh, the PUC this week said it will, in the next 30 days, ask commissioners to launch a formal investigation into the blackouts uh, to examine whether PG&E and other utilities, for that matter, like Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, which have also been doing some uh, of these so-called public public safety power shutoffs, have complied with state regulations and requirements, uh, and also re-examining how you utilities are using the blackouts in hopes of preventing them next fire season. The governor has kind of prejudged the results a bit. He says that the commission needs to penalize PG&E for over-relying on the shutoffs. In that interview with Randall White, he also said, look, right now PG&E has the incentive to shut off power. It is liable if it leaves the power on and a fire hits and its equipment causes the fire. It is not liable if the power goes off and either a fire starts or, I mean, it's not liable for the food rotting in people's fridges or the businesses going out of business. The liability, the the financial burden shifts away from PG&E. And one thing that Newsom says that he wants to take a look at is how to ensure that there uh, isn't one set of incentives pushing PG&E to turn the power off, that it's a more equal footing. Mm. One more area of discussion that's come out is cities and regions looking at forming their own power grids and being able to separate or pull away from PG&E. Do you know the the PUC role in this, or do you know how feasible that might be? There are people smarter than me who know exactly what the PUC's role is or how feasible they would be. Uh, I, I, I don't. Uh, what I would say, though, is I think a lot of communities are looking at this right now, but there are a lot of complicating factors. Right now, let's not forget, PG&E is in bankruptcy court, federal bankruptcy court, and a federal judge has more than anyone else uh, the power to decide how PG&E may um, exit bankruptcy and when PG&E exits bankruptcy. So I think a lot of communities are looking at this. I'm also watching what folks at the state capitol say to see if there is any sort of groundswell there, because there are a lot of complicated factors. And let's say that the state lawmakers and and the governor say, all right, we are breaking PG&E up by passing a law saying a utility, you know, for example. Which they could do. I, I, you can pass a law saying, you know, a utility cannot be larger than X. I'm sure they could pass a law. I, I don't know if it holds muster. But let's say they, they, they pass that law. Uh, and then let's say that it doesn't work out. Who are people going to blame at that point? Are they going to blame PG&E or are they going to blame their elected officials? Mm. So you got to think these things through. You can't be reflexive because this is the electric service to so many millions of Californians. I did, however, notice a Republican lawmaker this week uh, call for PG&E being broken up. Uh, Brian Daly, who represents uh, rural northeastern California and part of this area affected by the campfire, uh, issued a statement saying Governor Newsom should call a special session. We need to do a lot of different proposals to address this. But also we have to look at how, not whether, but how PG&E might be broken up. You are listening to CAP Radio's Capitol Bureau Chief Ben Adler. That alone is plenty of a discussion for Capital Chat, but there is more to get to because <laughs> I want to talk about AB5, the gig economy ballot measure. And we are starting to look ahead to which and how many ballot measures will be on that November 2020 ballot. But let's talk about AB5 and, and what happened on Tuesday. 
Sure. And and let's let's just back up one sec. AB5 is a state law that signed last month by Governor Newsom uh, and passed last month by the state legislature. Uh, and I mean, well, it may have been signed. I got to check whether it was signed in early October or late September, but it was passed last month by the state legislature. The governor signed it. And uh, the uh, it, it comes after a state Supreme Court ruling last year. So let's go back to the Supreme Court ruling, which started all of this. Okay. The California Supreme Court, in what is called the Dynamics case, set a new test, a three-pronged test, for when workers should be classified as employees versus independent contractors. Very sweeping court ruling uh, caused a lot of folks in the business community and a lot of companies to panic and then uh, ask for that to be changed. Then you get to the legislature, and this bill, AB5, becomes law. AB5 exempts certain industries, certain types of workers. For example, lawyers, doctors, hairstylists, uh, to some extent, freelance journalists up to a certain article limit, and there's a big debate going on. I mean, there are big debates over just about every industry Mm. in this bill and out of this bill. Uh, However, the uh, a lot of the industries were also left out, prominently the trucking industry and the gig economy. Gig companies like Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Postmates, Instacart, they've all been pushing so hard to get exempted because they believe it, it threatens their business model. And when they didn't get the exemptions they wanted at the end of the legislative session, uh, they vowed to go straight to voters. And uh, three of the companies have pledged $30 million each, so $90 million total toward a November 2020 ballot measure. They just submitted that ballot measure this week. So, so that gives what, us the context. And that's what happened Tuesday is this campaign was launched. That is the gig economy ballot measure. I do want to say that some people said the name of the original law as um, they pronounced it as Dynamex. So some people might not know <laughs> when you say Dynamics that, oh, that's the one that when you look at it, it looks like Dynamex. But I I want to get to some of the pro and con side of this. What is the ballot measure supposed to do? So the ballot measure offers benefits to gig drivers for app-based rideshare and delivery companies. It's narrowly tailored. So once again, more established industries like the truckers are left out of this ballot measure. They're going to have to try their own thing at the Capitol again or do a ballot measure or, or something like that. Uh, so the or, of course, backers would say uh, comply with the new law. So I should mention that is obviously a, an option, too. Uh, the um, ballot measure offers benefits in exchange for keeping their workers as their drivers as independent contractors. Benefits can include, would include, a minimum earnings guarantee, which is 120% of the minimum wage per hour of actual driving time, not uh, driving a rider time, not driving around looking for a ride, Uh, and certain health care benefits and uh, the like. There's a mileage reimbursement as well. Uh, the, it would not include Social Security benefits. It would uh, not include the right to unionize. Those are clearly areas that could be negotiated in the legislature because the gig companies are clearly reiterating that they would rather have a compromise in the legislature. Mm. But what's also happening is this debate is splitting the rideshare and delivery drivers. There's some who support it and some who oppose. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So mm-hmm. should we listen to some of them? 
Yeah, let's start with those who support it, someone who supports it. Okay, so we're going to hear from Lynn Regan, who uh, lives in the Sacramento area and drives for for multiple companies. And uh, she has four grandchildren and her uh, their, their their mother is on bed rest, so she is trying to earn money while also caring for the grandchildren. I have to be able to take them to school, and having three of them that start at different times, I'm able to work my schedule around that, get them to school on time, and still be able to sign on the app, make the money that I need to make for the day, and then go pick them up from school, and then if I want to, I can work again. I need the flexibility. If this was taken away from me, it would devastate me because there's no job out here that I can get, especially at my age, that's going to allow me to come and go as I need to do. And then a driver opposed is Jeff Perry from Rio Linda. He says he ran the math and under this ballot measure, he believes he would actually get a pay cut. I think Uber and Lyft have proven that they can't be trusted. And that's why drivers are looking for employee status, because employee status does provide protections and takes a lot of things out of the hands of Uber and Lyft. And we're not subject to their whim, you know. Drivers are saying, this is poverty, we're struggling, right? And then they come and they cut the pay and they put a nice name on it, really pretty name, fancy, right? Commit to $90 million. But they don't tell the real story behind it. And the real story behind it is this is a pay cut. One thing that's clear is drivers are doing the math. They're looking at these benefits. (laughs) They're looking at the work that they do. I've taken Lyft and Uber all over the country, and I'm always impressed by how smart and aware the drivers are of the business that they're involved in. They're entrepreneurial. They have to defend and protect themselves. And a lot of them will drive the maximum 14-hour shift, flexing it as they need to. And I I should just interject to say the campaign in favor of the measure uh, does not think that the math was done correctly by this other driver. And and, uh, so there's going to need to be some more digging to do. I think you know, each side has its perspective, uh, but uh, the text of the measure and how it's interpreted could be complicated, too. There will be an interesting time period between January, when the law takes effect, and then the ballot measure, if it lands on the November ballot, and then it taking effect. What's going to happen in that period of time? Status quo? I So here, here's the thing. AB5 becomes the law of the land January 1st, but that doesn't matter. The law of the land for gig economy drivers is the Supreme Court ruling from last year. So all of this time, according to that ruling, it is most likely that a judge would rule that these workers, these drivers, should have been treated as employees and not independent contractors. And there are lots of court cases moving through the system. The gig companies argue at least publicly that they believe they are still allowed under dynamics to treat their drivers as independent contractors. They may be, you know, compelled to say that because there's a lot of money at stake in these legal battles. Uh, but they feel uh, they're, they say they're going to keep doing what they're doing. If court says they have to do something else in a specific case, then they would. But uh, they're putting their attention toward a potential negotiation in the legislature, which would need to be completed by late June or the November ballot. And one final note on the benefits being offered in this potential ballot measure as it relates to health care. 
the it's it's an interesting package that they're offering. There will be two different subsidy levels. Uh, drivers who work at least 15 hours a week on a platform would receive 50% of the average monthly bronze plan premium on Covered California, the state's Affordable Care Act health benefit exchange. Those who work at least 25 hours a week would get 100%. But according to the campaign itself at the news conference this week, they said, look, more than 80% of our drivers are uh, you know, they are more than 80 percent of rideshare drivers drive less than 20 hours a week. More than 90 percent of delivery drivers drive less than 10 hours a week. Hmm. They said this in response to a question, why don't you offer Social Security benefits? They're like, this is not an employment model. This is supplemental income for most of these folks. But what it means is these, quote unquote, historic health care benefits, as described by the campaign, would barely go to any of the drivers. All right. This has been an extended capital chat. I'm not quite ready to let you go, though, because <laughs> oh, I, no. we alluded to the ballot measures that would be on the November 2020 ballot. The list, especially adding this one in, the list looks like it could be long or at least interesting. What's the picture that you see? I counted 10 that I see having legitimate chances of qualifying. The question is whether they'll stay on the ballot or whether deals will be reached, whether backers will withdraw them. Right. So we'll have to see. Um, I don't know if you want me to start rattling them off. I, I suspect you don't. Maybe a bail reform bill? Bail. The referendum on the bail overhaul, the, the legislation, the state law to eliminate cash bail, that has already been qualified by the bail and industry. And that will be on. That mm-hmm. will be on the ballot, yes. Um, I, I, I'm going to just make this big picture observation because we have about a year to talk about the the, the propositions on the November ballot. Mm-hmm. There is, by the way, one proposition on the March ballot, uh, a, a $15 billion school facilities bond, which has been designated Proposition 13. But I'll say this about the November ballot. Fewer, it's shaping up to, unless the legislature puts a bunch of measures on too, to be a shorter ballot than potentially previous Novembers, but a bigger one. Many more big items, mm. big props on there, whereas in the past, a long ballot, maybe not everything would have grabbed everyone's attention. But the issues that will be on the November ballot or that could be on the November ballot, there's very few that you look at and you say, oh, this is not that big of a deal. We're going to be doing some explaining if the March ballot says Proposition 13 at the top. Thank God <laughs> that it is not Prop 13 on the – there is no Prop 13 on the November ballot, which is expected to include what is yeah. known a split-roll ballot measure right. that would adjust the, the property, property taxes tax paid that under Prop 13. Proposition 13. Right. All right. Let me wish you a happy Halloween. I know you have a few trick-or-treaters in your home that you'll be out and about with tonight. I'll be dressing up as a dad who makes bad jokes. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. You're welcome. That is Ben Adler. He is our Cap Radio Capital Bureau Chief. You can find much more state government news if you haven't had enough at (laughs) capradio.org. Up next, we're going to continue the conversations about Meadowview as Cap Radio's Making Meadowview podcast continues. You're listening to Insight on Cap Radio. (laughs) 